This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 1.4 on the space road again, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan and dealing with a personal crisis now that I've realized I'm too old to fall into a cockpit. And I'm Nina, Gundam noob and chief executive overthinker. Sorry, I probably would have laughed, but when you started to dealing with a personal crisis, I started to feel like this was really serious. <laughs> this is serious, Nina. I'm too old to be a Gundam pilot. In this episode, we watch Escape from Luna 2, then talk about Ensign Bright's very bad day, big eyes and the early days of the anime industry, what we should be calling all of these spaceships, unrest in Japan, and those darn youths always challenging authority. But first, if you really want to understand this episode, you need to know a little bit about the Indochina refugee crisis. The Indochina refugee crisis was a major international crisis in the late 70s and early 80s, starting in 1975 and reaching its peak in 79 and 1980, right when Gundam was being made. So it was absolutely definitely in the heads of Gundam's creators when they made the series, and I think that shows in this episode. The crisis unfolded in different waves that started in 1975 when North Vietnam captured Saigon and conquered Southern Vietnam after 20 years of fighting. So the earliest refugees were tens and then hundreds of thousands of people fleeing South Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, and these included large numbers of people from ethnic minority groups that had been American allies during the war. Increasingly, the refugees were middle-class people, displaced by the social policies of the new governments or fleeing famine. In total, more than 2.5 million people fled their homes during the crisis. Most of them, between 1 or 2 million people, did so by boat, sailing through incredibly treacherous waters for countries like Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, Hong Kong, and, yeah, Japan. However, especially as the crisis worsened through the late 1970s, authorities in those countries refused to let the refugee boats land until European or North American countries agreed to accept the refugees for permanent resettlement. And early on in the crisis, Japan, which was by this time the richest country in Asia, contributed significant amounts of money to international relief efforts, but absolutely refused to let any refugees stay in the country. Up until 1978, refugees who did land in Japan were given permission to stay for no more than 15 days before they had to move on. But in 78, Japan did agree, in theory, to start accepting refugees for renewable one-year residence. The requirements of the program, however, were so strict that in the whole year after it was first instituted, only one family of three people ever qualified. Eventually, Japan did start accepting more refugees, initially committing to accept 1,000, but eventually granting residency to a total of 10,727 by the time that resettlement efforts ended in the 1990s. To put that in perspective, that's fewer than New Zealand and slightly more than Belgium. The United States, which accepted the most refugees, took a total of 1,287,399. 
In the case of the United States, while we're sure there were a lot of other contributing factors, one of the biggest factors would certainly have been a sense of responsibility for the situation in Vietnam and the situation that many of the refugees were fleeing. For many activists in Japan, they felt their own nation shared a portion of that responsibility. For many American soldiers serving in Vietnam, they went to Japan for R&R. Japan was where materiel was sent as a staging ground. Japan was where many of the U.S. bases prepared before sending troops on to Vietnam. And so while they hadn't sent soldiers, many in Japan saw themselves as just as culpable for having aided that war effort. Japan did have laws that prevented them from, say, selling any weapons to the U.S., but many Japanese companies made huge profits selling things like food and medicine, blankets, stuff like that to the U.S. war effort. I found a quote from a newspaper around the same time talking about Japan's participation in the Vietnam War, and I think it's really good. So this, this quote, and unfortunately I couldn't find the original author, but they describe Japan in the Vietnam War saying, this country, like a magician, satisfied both its conscience and its purse. Oh. Yeah, in the aftermath, there was certainly a feeling among many Japanese activists and young people that Japan did have some culpability for the refugee crisis. But on the other hand, especially in the early years, a lot of major figures in the Japanese anti-war movement were very reluctant to push for better treatment for the refugees. Because a lot of the first wave of refugees came from groups that had been allied with the U.S. And a lot of anti-war demonstrators in Japan viewed them as collaborators. It wasn't until later on in the refugee crisis when the scale increased and a lot of the people being displaced had had no role in the war whatsoever that a lot of those anti-war groups in Japan came around and started to agitate for better treatment for the refugees. As we'll talk about a little later in the episode... In Japan at that time, anti-war mostly meant anti-capitalist and anti-United States as well. The most vociferous anti-war protesters would have been socialists and communists and would have sympathized with the communist side of the struggle in Vietnam. Given all these factors, what finally motivated the change in Japanese policy? So it was a combination of different factors. International pressure is a major one that always gets cited, but I think the domestic situation was both more important and more interesting. And as the crisis was worsening and the Japanese populace was starting to come to believe that they should do more to help these refugees, including permanent resettlement in Japan, at the same time, political leaders, including the prime minister at the time, Ohira Masayoshi, came around as well and were starting to push for an expansion of Japan's assistance. The real holdout, who pushed back against efforts to improve Japan's assistance for the refugees was Japan's legendarily powerful, slow-moving, and conservative bureaucracy. And these sort of middle-level bureaucrats threw up all kinds of objections at every level. But ultimately, pressure from above, from the prime minister and the other political leaders, pressure from below, from the population, and pressure from outside, from the international community, all three of those factors working together was enough to overcome their resistance and convince them that something had to be done. So make sure you keep in mind that above, below, outside, triple pressure idea when you're watching the episode. I think you might see something like it.
Luna 2, the Federation's forward base, and last space stronghold, ought to be a sanctuary for the White Base and its exhausted crew. After saving the Gundam and the White Base from Xeon, our heroes are ready to lay down their burdens. Instead, they find themselves staring down the barrels of Federation rifles, then thrown into the brig when Commandant Joaquin orders them all court-martialed for taking control of top-secret weapons. As for the refugees, he orders them to remain aboard the White Base until he can arrange transport to Earth, even though most of them want to return to what's left of Side 7. Bright tries to warn Joaquin that Char is hot on their heels, but the Commandant ignores the young ensign, who appears to be on his first and last mission. Joaquin refuses to believe that an experienced soldier like the Red Comet would even consider attacking the heavily fortified Luna 2 base with a single Musai-like cruiser. But by now we all know that Char's strategies are anything but conventional. Once more, he sends a team of commandos in normal suits to slip through the Luna 2 defenses and sabotage the base's reactor. When Commandant Joaquin realizes he is under attack and tries to deploy his battleship, Char's saboteurs cripple the vessel, blocking the only exit from the base's hangar, trapping the entire Luna 2 fleet inside. Meanwhile, Char's cruiser hammers the base with missiles and beam cannons. Char's attack gives the White Base crew the opportunity they need to escape the brig, with a little distraction by Frabo and the Orphans, and some synchronized space fisticuffs by Bright and Amaro, working together for once. They infiltrate the hangar and begin prepping the Gundam for launch. When Commandant Joaquin catches them, it is the dying Captain Paolo who convinces him that only the White Base and its crew of amateurs stand a chance against Char. Faced with the choice between letting them try versus allowing Luna 2 to be destroyed without a fight, the Commandant gives the order to destroy his own ship so that the White Base can exit the hangar. Free at last to join the battle, Amaro and the White Base defeat Char and destroy both his wingmen. But this victory is marred by tragedy. Captain Paolo dies of his wounds during the fighting. He is buried at space, and Amaro wonders about the fate of his own father. So we just finished watching episode four, Escape from Luna 2, and these are our impressions. But they just got to Luna 2. <laughs> yeah, we didn't we didn't get any rest at all at Luna 2. They are not able to put down their burdens. The named characters, our heroes who have so far been guiding the white base and protecting it, are arrested, anticipating a court-martial. Yeah, essentially being punished for doing the only thing they could have done. If if they hadn't taken control of the White Base and the Gundam, they would all be dead. Right. And Xeon would have their top secret technology. They could have just died. And and lost the technology to Xeon. Yes. But yeah, they, I guess because they are civilians and a very low ranking <laughs> member of the Navy, the fact that they took possession of top secret equipment means they are likely to be disciplined. Yeah, this is Bright's first experience on the other side. This is where Bright gets to feel the way Amaro has been feeling every time Bright has talked to him. I also think Bright grew a spine. You know, he uh, <laughs> he's so much more uncertain in those early episodes. But the minute that it's implied that they're all going to be disciplined 
for what he perceives as a highly successful mission in very difficult circumstances. He is, it's not yes, sir, no, sir, keeping my mouth shut, sir. It's how can you say that? He is very willing to question those orders and confront that authority. Well, Bright has gotten a taste for command and he is not going to give it up. After becoming accustomed to our mixed group on the bridge of the white base, it did feel weird that they separated the men and women when they put them in cells for the court-martial. Yeah, a little bit. We haven't yet, we will, but we haven't yet met any Federation officers who are women, or Xeon officers for that matter, except for our, our crew on the white base. There, but there are some. Yes, we'll meet them. We'll meet them before too much longer. I would like to talk about what I see as the biggest injustice of all so far, the completely inequitable distribution of big, bright, shiny anime eyes. <laughs> because Amuro and Fraubo get big, bright, shiny anime eyes all the time. It's true. Everybody kira, else kira. Everybody else only gets them sometimes or never. It's true. Ryu Jose never gets big, shiny anime eyes. Bright. Kaishiden never. Bright sometimes. Oh, wait. Yeah, that's bright, bright gets them sometimes. Commander Wakain, Joaquin, Watkin, they're like a million different ways this has been spelled in different um, fan translations. So the Commandant doesn't get them. Char gets them. Well, bright, shiny anime eyes are for men who are young or pretty. And women. It's true. Of the three orphans, the girl always gets them. She has big, beautiful blue eyes. The sort of boring looking boy sometimes gets them. And then the pig pen, like, filthy orange, boy. orange skinned, <laughs> very filthy boy doesn't get them at all. I think that's a longstanding anime convention of the big, pretty, emotionally expressive eyes being for bishonen, mm -hmm. which is, which means literally like beautiful young man, children and women. Hayato gets them sometimes also. He's another sometimes one. I think because he's young. There's also, I think Hayato tends to get them more often when he's one of the only, like one of two people in the frame. And if it's a big group scene, he's less likely to get them. Possible other explanation. Those eyes are harder to animate, so they do them less often. Yeah. And only for the most important characters who need to have the most emotionally expressive faces. <laughs> I was noting during the episode, Char wears a mask most of the time. We see him take it off once when he's confronting Sela, possibly Artesia. No, we've discussed <laughs> this. Sela is too strong to be Artesia. Anyway, so he wears a mask, and I wondered if there was a story reason for that. Tom mentioned when he takes the mask off, his face looks much angrier and more bitter. They give him a lot of line work around the eyes that makes him look sort of bitter and cruel and ironic. And with the mask, you're just getting his mouth and the expression is much more neutral to positive. Or maybe they just got lazy about animating his eyeballs. It's possible. Also, Char wears a sword. Yes. We don't know if he's retro or if there are going to be sword fights later. I decline to comment on the grounds <laughs> that I already know the answer. You may not have noticed this, and you, you wouldn't recognize it since you haven't actually seen any other Musai except in the opening, but Char's Musai is unique because the bridge has been modeled to look like his helmet. See, Most Musai don't have that. I didn't even know Musai was a class of machine. I thought it was the name of his specific ship. We're going to be encountering that a lot because... <laughs> Many ships that we're encountering now, we're going to hear the names as though they're the names of those ships. 
And then later, I think they're going to be retconned into being classes of ship. So for instance, today we saw a Magellan. It was, I think it was called the Magellan, but that's a Magellan class ship. Aha. Yes. Good to know. Two additional technology notes. These are both updates. One is on the gravity. We talked in the last episode about the section of the ship with the curved hallway. And in this one, we got confirmation from Bright when Char's infiltrators destroy the reactor at Luna 2 and cause the power to go out. Bright says that the, the centrifugal gravity has been disabled. When that happens, our heroes in their cell all get slammed against one of the walls. What's happened there is that the rotating block that gives them the impression of gravity has stopped and their inertia causes them to smack into the wall. So that's the one in Luna 2. And then there's one in the White Base also, which is where all the refugees are. And that's why uh, Fraubo wants to move them out of the ship since the hangar itself is under direct attack. The other one is about the Minovsky particle. In this episode, we get the first mention of the fact that the Minovsky particle interferes with sensors and that that is why combat has moved back to a close visual range. This is when they're approaching Luna 2 and Char and Ensign Dren are discussing whether or not there's enough Minovsky particle density to shield them from Luna 2's sensors. So sort of a sidebar, but something I've noticed in many of these episodes, but particularly here, is how comfortable the teens, for lack of a better word, are with various technologies, right? We've got Amuro, who doesn't really know the Gundam, but kind of knows computers. Kind of knows computers is an understatement okay. for him. I think he's... He knows computers very well. He programmed Haro, the little floaty robot guy. Mm -hmm. uh, we see him working on a computer in the first scene. When his name is first mentioned on the bridge, Mirai says, Oh, Amuro, I don't know him, but he's famous on Side 7 for his love of machines. Well, but even other people, even Kai, even Ryu Jose, even the rest of the group are all out there with welding torches and, mm -hmm. or like gas cutters to cut the straps that are holding the Gundam. They're getting machinery ready. They're, it's the sort of thing where if they sit down with a manual, they can figure it out, which I'm given to understand <laughs> is... Uh, the way a lot of older folks feel when they see young people interact with technology. Like, oh, they just understand. They yeah. just sort of fiddle with it and figure it out, and it's intuitive for them, which is a thing we notice a lot now with small children who are almost shocked when they interact with something that's not a touchscreen. Like, wait, why can't <laughs> they just see little kids touch a TV? Like, mm -hmm. wait, why can't I interact with it? But that that's been going on probably as long as there has been technology. That probably happened with the first rocks and sticks. Kids these days, they understand rocks and sticks so intuitively. I mean, probably. Yeah, when we see Amuro and company in their cell in the brig, Amuro has drawn a diagram of a circuit in his mashed potatoes and is explaining it to everyone around. And while they're not as up on it as he is, they clearly understand what he's talking about. Well, he also takes a moment to explain a bit more what he meant earlier about the learning computer for the Gundam, that it essentially contains case studies of every battle that it participates in and can use that information to modify how it works, which was a very new idea at the time, the one that we are more and more used to now. Yes. I love that case study is a loan word. 
I'm sure there is a Japanese term. This is another place where we should compare with the Xeon because Char does not have an advanced learning computer Gundam, but because he's a human capable of learning, he's also studying and modifying. Every encounter he has with the Gundam, he does a little bit better. He fights it in a slightly different way, more effectively. I would also just like to point out, yet again, somebody getting mad at Kai for no good reason when he's being totally reasonable when they're imprisoned. They drop off some food for them and Kai points out, you won't have energy for the things you need to do if you don't eat. You have to eat every chance you get. Uh, Spoken like a true soldier. Spoken like a survivor. (laughs) Even if what you need energy for is running away. And Amuro bristles and makes like he wants to hit Kai or something and gets stopped by Ryu. Amuro's just bristly. Amuro's having emotions and he wants them to be validated. He doesn't doesn't want to hear Kai say that he should eat. Or that maybe they will have to run away. See, I feel like that's a smaller thing. I feel like that's just Kai. That's just so that we we know it's Kai speaking. (laughs) Because that's that you should eat uh, advice is that's solid Hayato good advice. But it's coming out of Kai. So he has to add something about running away. He could have finished with. I'd like to dig into the treatment of the refugees a bit. Initially, there's this attitude of, well, we can't keep the refugees here. It's under a state of emergency. And we can sort of understand that. A military base is not an ideal place for a bunch of civilians. However, even though they're in a constant state of emergency, there's no, ah, and we're going to transport you somewhere else immediately. It's, oh, we're going to contact Federation HQ and they'll tell us what to do and we're probably sending you to Earth. It's very, we're going to tell you what's happening, not what do you want to happen. And even after all of the destruction at Side 7, many of the refugees want to go home. That's, you know, they're not trying to get to Earth. They want eventually to go back to Side 7. I felt very strong emotional reaction to the scene where Frabo and the orphans are confronting some of the soldiers about moving the refugees to a safer part of the ship now that the ship is, or the base, now that the base is under attack. And they say, well, we don't have orders, so we can't do anything. And she's like, oh, well, I guess we'll just die then. But that part didn't get me so much as the little girl kicks a soldier and he points his gun at her. You know, she's a toddler. Those children, I if I had to put an age on them, I'd say they are six or thereabouts. And this grown man with armor and weapons gets kicked in the shins by a six-year-old and points his gun at her. And that is very likely reflective of things that people were seeing in the news at the time about soldiers interacting with civilian populations in wars around the world Japan was paying particular attention to Vietnam in the 60s. The soldier's inability to take proactive action also just kind of hammers home how ineffective the command structure of this particular ship is. Nobody is willing to make suggestions. Nobody is willing to do anything that wasn't directly ordered by Joaquin. And that's not normal, I wouldn't think. Like, On a base that large, there are definitely underlings who have 
decision-making power. He's not the only one who can make a decision about anything, but he's the kind of commander where nobody will chance it. And they say that when they're putting the, the bindings on the Gundam, one of them says something like, oh, the commandant is very serious about his orders. Yeah, he's not really a sympathetic figure. He gets a good line at the end, but he's not a sympathetic figure at all. And this sets up a really interesting distinction from Zeon, since of what we've seen of Zeon so far, there's a ton of autonomy. Mm-hmm. Char is operating under orders that are basically get the Gundam or destroy it, do whatever you need to do. But even before then, he initially encounters the white base while he's on the way back from another mission. And he has the autonomy to just decide, oh, this is a priority. I'm going to go after this. And it backfires on them. But when Char sends his reconnaissance team out to find what's inside Seven back in episode one, Gene, the Zaku pilot, just decides he's going to attack. And it's insubordination, but he seems to think that as long as it turns out okay, there won't be any punishment for him. And then we cut back to Joaquin, who, even in the face of an attack, even with the only exit of Luna 2 blocked by a disabled ship, no amount of reasonable persuasion from a bunch of underlings and civilians will convince him. It's only when we get the Captain Paolo reveal... When Mirai steps aside and we suddenly see the near-death Captain Paolo behind her, that he is willing to listen. He's only willing to listen to another captain. Thank goodness Captain Paolo (laughs) made it that long. Right. What would have happened if Captain Paolo had not been there and Commandant Joaquin, Joaquin had to actually make a decision? Sadly, we lose Captain Paolo, who was so pragmatic and generally supportive of our, our group. And I do notice that despite the fact that they will be on Earth very shortly, he is buried at sea, so to speak. Indeed he is. And his funeral is the first time we see Amaro openly wonder what happened to his father. We don't know actually what's happened to Amaro's father. And it seems like Amaro doesn't either. He may not have actually seen his father sucked out after the explosion. Amaro's father was not found when they were looking for survivors and is not on the white base. So who knows? this episode, we see a lot of young people standing up to authority figures in a way that you would not have seen portrayed in the pre-war period, or if you did, it would be about troublemakers, and it would be as an object lesson as to why you don't do that, why you respect and obey authority. Seeing instead young people standing up to authority for good reason, portrayed as pursuing a more just world, disobedient, or one might even call them rebellious young people, is really a product of the post-war period, and I'd like to talk a little about how we get to that point in Japanese pop culture. In the post-war period, one of our sources described Japanese culture as undergoing a mass shattering of their belief system, that the ideals that they had upheld before the war as the most worthy and the most valuable in society were now seen as having caused and contributed to this horrific war. And so everyone was forced to rethink then what characteristics do we want to uphold in society? What do we want to tell people is the correct way for a person to be? And before the war, during the war, those were ideals people were willing to die for. They weren't just the cultural feeling. They were like zealously believed in 
Well, it was religion. We can talk at some later point about Confucianism and Shinto and the ways in which philosophy and religion intermingle in Japan. But for our purposes here, it's enough to know that the way in which those beliefs were inculcated into the population was systematic from the very beginning of childhood on and was treated with almost religious reverence. Not almost, was treated with religious reverence. In this period of psychosocial tumult that was also characterized by massive improvements to the economy, but an accompanying increased pressure to perform at work, we also see an increase in suicide, bullying, domestic terror, juvenile delinquency, arrests in school, and petty crime. We also see a sudden increase in labor and student organizing, followed almost immediately by efforts to suppress political and ideological dissent as the freedoms of the immediate post-occupation period yield to fears of communism. In the 1960s, protests over the Mutual Security Treaty led to labor unions on strike, massive protests, and one student dead in clashes with police. The bulk of these protests, and quite a number of political protests at this time, were against the United States, whose foreign policy was considered highly imperialistic. So what is the Mutual Security Treaty? We talked a little bit about the Mutual Security Treaty in the last episode. This is the treaty that binds Japan and the United States to defend each other should one or the other be attacked. It also includes a number of other provisions, including at the time a reaffirmation of the status of U.S. military bases in Japan. And that's what people were mostly protesting against? It was a combination of the bases and the military presence in Japan, but also any treaty that would obligate Japan to what some saw as violate its constitution by attacking another power, even if it were in defense of the United States. During this time of social activism, leisure time during university promoted a great deal of student activism. For many young people in Japan, the real intense struggle is during high school to do as well as possible and to prepare as well as possible for college entry exams. If you are one of the lucky ones who is able to get into a prestigious university, suddenly your schoolwork becomes somewhat irrelevant. Not to say that there aren't Japanese university students who work very hard, but the expectations are quite different. It's much less on academic performance or schoolwork, and much more on networking, on clubs, on other activities that allow you to develop relationships with your fellow students. As a result of all this leisure time, there were huge numbers of protests, riots, sit-ins, university barricades, almost exclusively anti-United States and anti-capitalist. There were major protests when they started building the Narita Airport in Tokyo. They had to expropriate a lot of land from farmers. And when they were trying to move people off of the land in order to start building the airport, huge numbers of people gathered there and built small huts, fences, set up basically a massive sit-in on the ground that was supposed to become the airport. And this resulted in quite violent clashes in which I believe four police officers and a protester were killed. The violence of these activities peaked in the early 1970s. What all of this activity, the organizing, the protests, shows us about students of the 1970s is that there was an intense idealism 
and desire to create a better society and to transform Japan's institutions. Most of this doesn't directly relate to the episode. We don't see them have a riot (laughs) or a sit-in or set up barricades. But what it does tell us is why Tomino and his writers might look favorably on young people standing up to authority, standing up for what they believe in and their ideals, and to protect people who need protection from this sort of callous and unfeeling system in a way that you really wouldn't have seen in earlier pop culture products. Crucially, and very interestingly, it's not that our characters are portrayed as being delinquents in any way, except Kai. Kai is kind of a delinquent. But everybody, from the very responsible Frau Bo to the sort of middle of the road Amuro and the brown noser Hayato, they all work together against authority. Because authority is wrong, and authority is going to get them all killed. During the episode, I remember you finding it really gut-wrenching seeing that soldier pointing his gun at the little kid, a girl who we have clarified is four years old at this point. And that just reminded me of all of the photos that you see from the Vietnam War demonstrations, especially in the U.S., of kids, teenagers, college students, standing up to protest in the face of National Guard units carrying rifles and pointing them directly at the peaceful protesters. There are all those iconic photos now of people stuffing flowers into the barrels of guns. Perhaps even more relevant to this particular scene, there was a lot of war correspondent photography and video footage of U.S. soldiers in villages in Vietnam that often contrasted the small children and their families with the heavily geared up soldiers marching through villages and jungle. And this, of course, is an era when lots of military forces were being asked to act like police. In Northern Ireland, large numbers of British troops were acting as sort of police. In Okinawa, U.S. soldiers acted as police. In Israel and Palestine, Israeli troops were acting as police. So it was pretty common at this time for not just militarized police, but policized militaries to be very active with predictable results. Our discussion of anime eyes gives me a good opportunity to talk a bit about anime history and aesthetics. Tomino really got his start working for the granddaddy of modern anime, Osama Tezuka, at Mushi Productions, specifically on the show Mighty Adam, which many of you probably remember as Astro Boy, which premiered in 1963. Astro Boy is like the first anime, isn't it? I believe it's the first TV series. Before this period, animations were typically shorts or feature length, but were aired in cinemas. So Tomino got his start at the start. At the height of its popularity, Astro Boy was watched by something like 40% of Japanese households that owned a television. Wow. What Osama Tezuka and Astro Boy show us are some of the fundamentals of storytelling that we can see in Tomino's work, even once he is the creative force behind something. So from the beginning, anime has dealt with serious subjects. One of the things that Astro Boy showed was that you could talk about sensitive issues as long as you introduced some abstraction to give it distance from the real world, 
For instance, Astro Boy had an entire story arc about the Atlantic slave trade and about the discrimination experienced by black people in America, but they used robots as their stand-in for black people. And so we're able to deal with that issue in a kid's program in a way that would not have been permitted by censors, by the network, by <laughs> their advertisers, if they had tried to do it all explicitly. Robots. Is there anything they can't do? It also sets up some fundamental themes that we can see showing up in Tomino's work as well. Themes of miscommunication and misunderstanding, discrimination, dangers of technology and nuclear power, moral complexity of individuals, and the pointlessness of war. Finally, Mighty Adam, to its own detriment in some ways, set the standard for industrial production of anime for television. When they first started the show, they really didn't know if it was going to be successful. It was sort of a, an expensive and risky prospect. And so they had a very tight budget and very tight schedules. As a result, the wages were very low for everyone involved. The animation schedule was grueling. And in a lot of ways, the animation had poor quality, lower frames per second, and other visual shortcuts. Then Mighty Adam was successful. However, they also proved that you could make a successful anime under those schedules and those budgets. And many animators will tell you today that that legacy continues. It's the old budget problem. If you ask for what you need, they give you less. And then when you prove that you can do it with less, they say, great, we were right all along, and they give you even less next time. So what did he do on Astro Boy? Was he just like an in-betweens animator? I don't know all of the positions that Tomino held at Mushi Productions. He was there for a significant length of time, but he actually directed more episodes than any other single employee other than Tezuka himself. Wow. On the aesthetic side, we thought you might be interested to know the large eyes animation actually comes from the earliest part of the golden age of American animation, so the 1930s and 40s. If you think about characters like Betty Boop, Bugs Bunny, Mickey Mouse, uh, they all have very large eyes relative to the size of their face, and they were big influences for the earliest generation of Japanese animators. Another interesting note is that characteristic of anime, you see very cinematic shots, pans, zooming, shifting distances, shifting angles that were not characteristic of Western animation at the time, but that developed as part of the Japanese anime style. In the case of Tomino, we know that he initially trained to be a live action director, and that was what he wanted to do, but at the time that he graduated, he couldn't find jobs doing that, and that was why he took the job at Mushi. But I wonder, did this become characteristic of Japanese anime because that was most directors' experience? Were most directors coming into anime from a live-action film background? Or is there some other reason why that became part of the style? So that reminded me of something I once read from an interview with Tomino. He was asked about his thoughts about the movie Star Wars. The first Star Wars movie, what we now call A New Hope, came out only shortly before Gundam. And as you can see from the beam sabers, it had a pretty significant impact on Tomino. So he was asked what his feelings were about Star Wars. And he said something very significant, which was, I already had the story outline done when the movie was released. And frankly, I felt extremely frustrated and bitter. 
In the United States, a film like Star Wars could be made in live action, whereas in Japan, we were in a position, I was in a position, where I had to make my story in robot animation. And I don't particularly like robot animation. So Tomino didn't really like working in animation, certainly not in very commercialized robot animation, but he had this story that he wanted to tell, and these were the only means available to him. So he's constantly struggling against this genre that he's working in, against its conventions, its tropes. And I think that's part of what makes Gundam so weird and different and wonderful and what helped it to revolutionize the genre. And in many ways, he was probably trying to make it as cinematic as possible. Absolutely. For a final fun tidbit, as I researched anime aesthetics, one of the points that came up is how anime hair is a trope in and of itself. The bright colors, the wacky styles, more significant to my own interest, the movement of it. The way hair moves in a scene is a big part of how the character as a whole moves. However, it would seem that has not developed yet at this point. We see a lot of helmet hair in this episode. People's styles are very static and very smooth. That could also be a product of tight budgets. It's one fewer thing to animate in a scene. However, it will be interesting to watch as we move through the different series, when do the budgets start to pick up? When does the animation improve? When does the hair start to move? <laughs> when do all of the eyes get animated and not just the most important eyes? So keep your eyes on the eyes. This is the second episode in a row where Amuro has refused food. Does he have a problem? I think we are meant to interpret his seeming disinterest in food or inability to care for himself as a sign of his dedication to the Gundam, his passion and his genius. It's true. He also doesn't bathe or change his clothes until Frabo makes him. Yes, mother. Isn't it so nice having a woman around to take care of the genius? You think it's something less problematic? Like an eating disorder? <laughs> but yeah, I think the lack of care for his person, particularly some pretty essential physical needs like food, is meant to be a shorthand. It's meant to be a little flag that says, this guy's our genius. He is so caught up in learning about the Gundam that he doesn't have time for trivial human thoughts, like the needs of his physical body. He's having emotions. Is he? Well, he's really angry that he's been separated from the Gundam in this episode. This is also the episode in which Amuro officially becomes an ace. By the conventional definition of ace, as someone who has managed to shoot down five enemy craft in combat. I love that there's an official definition for that. It varies country by country and conflict by conflict, but that's the most commonly accepted one. When does that originate from? I assume it originates from World War I. Red Baron times? Indeed. That's a good question for further research at some other time. And if you aren't familiar with who the Red Baron is, I'm sure at some point we will offer <laughs> a brief explanation as he is one of several obvious influences for Char's character. Yes, just imagine Char, but German. I repeat myself. <laughs> just imagine Char. <laughs> but yes, so this is the episode in which Amuro gets his fifth confirmed kill. In the first episode, he took down both Jean and Denim. Gene while he was running away, and Denim got speared on Amuro's beam saber while he was trying to avenge Gene. Really sort of ran himself onto that one. In episode two, Amuro shoots down Slender with a single shot from his beam rifle. In episode three, 
He takes down Gadem in hand-to-hand close combat. And in episode four, we don't know if it's Matthew or Fix, but somebody tries to get the jump on him, and Amuro gives him a little backhanded stab while he's busy fighting off Shar. So, which of Shar's wingmen do you think has the most embarrassing death? I think it's got to be the last one. Being stabbed or shot in the back while running away is not, I think, that embarrassing. Being killed avenging your friend, not that embarrassing. All the one-on-one combats, that's just a matter of they don't understand the capabilities of the Gundam. But getting sort of backward stabbed while sneaking up on someone, that's pretty sad. I'll grant you that that's pretty bad. But remember that in the first episode, Amuro has never piloted a Gundam before. He doesn't know anything about it except what he read in the manual. And he manages to take down two experienced veteran soldiers who started the fight in the first place. I gotta go with Gene and Denim being the most embarrassing deaths. Because come on, guys. What kind of attack was that? Who was piloting that thing? You can't pick two of them. You have to pick one. Which do you think is the more embarrassing, Gene or Denim? I want to say Denim because he's the more experienced pilot and he really should have known better. But I got to go with Gene because he started this whole thing saying how he was going to prove himself in real combat just like his commander Shar. And about 20 minutes later, he's getting cut in half with a beam saber. I still think Tom is completely wrong, but you should let us know what you think in the comments. Have you seen the show? Which of these various, we can't call them red shirts because they do have names, suffered the most embarrassing death? I'm also just going to say that at this point, Amuro has faced a linear slope of increasing difficulty in his combats. In the first combat, he faces two grunts. In the second combat, he faces one char, one grunt. In the third combat, he faces one char, one veteran grunt with amazing mustache. And in the fourth combat in this episode, he faces one char, two grunts. Way to go, Amuro. So the real question is, next episode, will he face two char? Two char for you. Next week, we'll return with episode 1.5, The Descendants of Earth, to talk about Manuel Returns. The Earth will straight up kill you. You can go home again. Hammer time. Deploy space poncho. Take two capsules and call me in the morning. Amaro's got a death wish. Frabo knows where her towel is. An acoustic remix. Slow pans, static shots, recycled animation, and other deliberate artistic choices for the show on a budget. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all the podcast things. Like, subscribe, share, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast. Check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for episodes, show notes, and more. And you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or come shout your wrong Gundam opinions to us directly by coming to Scenic New York City and yelling that the Jesta is just a gym quell that works out on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. An asteroid dragged into Earth's er- orbit. Orbit. Earth's orbit. As episode. Earth's orbit. Earth's orbit. Ugh.
Gede. 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 Okay. Does that just mean we have to be very loud? Well, not loud, but, you know, we have to project. We are picking those up. Yeah, that was very loud and, like, right here. <laughs> Side-eye construction noises. So I have two other things I noticed that probably should have come up earlier. I don't okay. know how you're going to want to... Put them earlier. The Gundam. I said that in a very weird way. The Gundam. I don't think that made it in. Oh, was that not in? No, that was in one of the, the pre-pre-recordings and we never managed to make it into the audio. It was in episode one. We tried, we couldn't find a place to make it work and the audio quality was so different okay. that it couldn't, we just couldn't fit it in. Was that everything? Thank you.